The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. something can be just as important as any of its other parts, but one needs to be careful not to ram it down the audience's throat, as it can make their eyes water. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and viceroy of the Indies, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's presentation is Carry On Columbus, the 1992 revival of the popular comedy film series starring Jim Dale, Bernard Cribbins, Sarah Crowe, and a host of British comedy talent. My guest is fellow podcaster Tyler Adams, Join us on the high seas, scouting the horizon for mermaids. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Jeremy. Now, what can you tell me about the Carry On films? Ooh, start with the, start with the hard question first. It's not that hard. <laughs> I uh, know you like a hard one. <laughs> oh, uh, um, I'm very, very fond of the Carry On films. I have probably seen them all apart from there's the odd handful there's the odd couple i haven't seen i think i haven't seen carry on jack and i haven't seen all of carry on emmanuel because i gave up <laughs> probably about 20 minutes in um but uh, you know they're 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 the bedrock of british comedy really aren't they british film comedy in any case yeah i mean it's it's I think it's hard to describe now how massively popular and massively successful they were. Mm. They were they were consistent box office champs for about twenty years, and often with two movies released in the same year. That's right, yeah. I mean, people complain about Marvel now, but you know, at least they have different actors from one film to the next. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, I, I actually have seen all the, the Carry On films. Mm. Uh, I've seen Carry On Jack and remember almost nothing about it. And I have seen Carry On Emmanuel all the way through. Right. It, do, it does not improve. Well, um, we do get to see Peter Butterworth in what is basically a, a sex comedy. Don't we, um, see, um, don't we see Kenny Williams's buttocks in that film? Yes, he does a scene where he's naked skydiving. Mm-hmm. It's as funny as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> but after the series came to a, a, a spluttering, stuttering halt in 1978, there were attempts during the 80s to revive it. Right. There was a proposed carry on Dallas. Wow. Um, um, which was abandoned <laughs> when it, it turned out that the cost of licensing the Dallas name from Lorimar was 20 times the total budget. Okay. <laughs> um, there was going to be a Carry On Down Under to be filmed in Australia, but the the money fell through for that. And late in the 80s, we got very close with Carry On Again Nurse. Right. Which would have had most of the surviving cast, um, with Joan Sims now as the matron and, and uh, a picture of Hattie Jakes in her office. Oh, right. And there's a, there's a, there's a completed script and everything. 
And then Kenneth Williams died and Charles Hawtrey died in quick succession and then the financing pulled out. Okay. Well, that sounds like... I mean, that sounds like it would have been a pretty nice, pretty good note to, to go out on if that had been made. Not, not Carry On Dallas. Carry On Dallas sounds terrible. Yeah, uh, it was um, Kenneth Williams' FR Screwing or something like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's as funny as it sounds. <laughs> you see... I wasn't totally on board with Carry On Cowboy when they were putting on American accents. I prefer them, you know, as in Carry On, don't don't lose your head. They're just doing they're playing French characters, but just doing it in their normal voices. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have really warmed to Carry On Dallas if they were putting on American accents again. Well, at least with Kenneth Williams, he is a voice actor, and he was a he was a he was a skilled voice actor, so he can do a, a an approximation of a comedy American accent without it being too egregious. I mean, because Sid James is really struggling in Carry On Cowboy. He is. Um, but come 1992, it was, of course, the 500th anniversary of Columbus landing in the uh, New World. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were a number of films produced to tie in with the anniversary. We had Ridley Scott's 1492 Conquest of Paradise, huge, sweeping, epic picture. We had Christopher Columbus, The Discovery from the director of A View to a Kill. Mm -hmm. And we had Carry On Columbus, with the producer-director team returning, various members of the Carry On uh, classic cast returning in mostly supporting roles, and Jim Dale returning for his last live-action film role to date uh, to play the lead role, at the age of 57, I think. He was looking well, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's clearly quite a bit older than um, his last appearance in the, in the movies about 20 years earlier. But he, he, he's not showing his age at any point. Although, um, his leading lady, Sarah Crow, was also his son's fiancée. Yeah, I read about that and I was thinking, and it made me think back about the scenes that she has with Jim Dale, where she's got her hand up his skirt, or whatever it is, hand up his, yeah. uh, his, his cloak. Well, she's just, uh, uh, I don't know, shaking, shaking hands with the family or something like that. <laughs> and she I'm wanted to get her hands on the family jewels. Absolutely. She wanted I, to I, see what she was uh, getting herself into. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll workshop that. Mm. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting was that a lot of the, the new cast are drawn from the comic strip. Yeah. Um, Peter Richardson... Alexi Sale, um, Nigel Planer and Rick Mail have cameo roles. Do you feel that there's a, a clash there in the, in the comic sensibilities of the two? Oh yeah, there is. I think, I think that it's, it's one thing having Jim Dale making a, a kind of corny innuendo, but Rick Mail, Nigel Planer, it just doesn't. It doesn't sound right coming out of their mouths. It, it sounds okay. It sounds more credible coming out of Julian Clary's mouth, but um, but it just it, it didn't seem. It was the the Rick Mail sequence right at the beginning where he's what is he Abdul the Benevolent, um, who murders all his subjects. Yeah, he was he was doing he was doing his Rick act. And it was like, but it, it was like he was he was being restrained. He was having to restrain himself, and he didn't really look entirely comfortable. And it's funny because there's a lot of 
coarser double entendre humour in something like Bottom, mm. you know, with, with Eddie asking Rick, oh, can I drink your juice? Yeah, but it's done knowingly, isn't it? it it's done in a more... It's, it's done with a, a, a direct sort of wink at the audience, I think, more than, yeah. it, than it... Well, I don't know. Is it, is it done like, like that in the Carry On films? Is it done with a direct kind of acknowledgement to the audience that... Well, yeah, the Carry On is... films, I think, the, I think the comparison would be the Carry On films are music hall and those uh, things like Bottom are more like fringe theatre right. performed yeah. in, a, in a box room over a pub. <laughs> yeah. And in the opening titles, we see a map of the world with various caricatured items in the various places. So we have a teapot where, for China and a curry for India. Mm. And we discover in, the, in this prologue with, with Mail and, uh, and Planer that there are plans to uh, open a trade route um, across the Atlantic between Europe and China that would bypass his own uh, empire and deprive him of all the fees that he can take from people. And we get Bert Kwok in that sequence as well. Yeah, because I, I, right, I saw this film when it... No, not when it came. I didn't see it in the cinema, but I got it on video when it was released on video. So that would have been 1993, probably. Yeah. So that's the last time I'd seen it before watching it for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, so when I started watching it the other day, in my head, I kind of stupidly assumed that it would that there wouldn't be any sort of um i was kind of thinking looking at it through the prism of today's sensibilities thinking that it it, or it would you know it won't have any sort of crass racial stereotypes or any um jokes about you know curry or belly dances or whatever it may be but stupidly you know it's 30 years ago isn't it it's it's still yeah. still very much within that that's still very much uh seen as being acceptable well it depends on what context the jokes are in because i mean the idea that um, fatima wears her belly dancing costume underneath her clothes at all times i think that's a funny joke it's quite silly and childish but it's still i think quite funny mm. regard, you know regardless of any um uh, you know racial element because i mean it, the whole thing is is it goes back to the comparison I've often made with Alo Alo, which is it's hard to say that Alo Alo is offensive towards a particular group of people because everyone is caricatured. The British are ridiculously caricatured in Alo Alo as these stiff upper lip dimwits. Yeah. And yeah, all the, the German characters, all the Nazi, all the Nazi characters are genuinely nasty and the others are just greedy and, and self-serving and the French are all sleeping with each other and the, the Italians are cowardly self-aggrandizing self -aggrandizing constantly mm. so it's all just it, you know it's it's equal opportunities ridicule true yeah mm -hmm. and I think in 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 this it's it's so absurd and it's so farcical that short of anything genuinely pushing against boundaries of acceptability I think that there isn't really anything that they could have done that would be really shocking I, I it's it feels outdated for 1992 but it doesn't feel antiquated or offensive or anything like that there's certainly i don't think anything terribly offensive by modern standards what do you think that the the mod the younger comedians what did what do you think they saw that they could get out of being in the film um potential well 
I suppose hoping that they might break America because a few of the Carry On films had been mm. uh, big in the US. Carry On Nurse particularly had been a surprise smash hit. That's right, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, but perhaps just the opportunity to to work with some of these you know, much-loved uh, comic performers. I mean, Peter Richardson plays Columbus's younger brother, Bart, and Richardson's actually pretty good in the film. Um, it's a, a, a relatively serious light performance and he gets to work with Jim Dale all the way through and you know he's the joint lead in a, in a major film without having to direct it because he directed most of the comic strip um, so I think you know it was it was a mixture of perhaps you know honest careerism and working with you know people you grew up with and respected sure yeah yeah that said there were people who were asked to be involved who very quickly said no um, Barbara Windsor was asked to play the Queen of Spain and saw the script and said no almost immediately um, John Pertwee has a small role um, but the problem was that he thought that he he, accept, he accepted the role sight unseen mm. but he thought he was going to be in the Ridley Scott film <laughs> seriously yeah <laughs> So, oh, cameo in a Ridley Scott film. Oh, that's yes, yeah, certainly. No, sorry, sorry, John. And if he if he had appeared in the Ridley Scott film, in, is it fourteen ninety two? That's the film, isn't it? Yes. If he had appeared in that, do you think he would have done the same shtick with the cross eye, sort of face pulling? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, going off on a, a side tangent, that film I think is the only Ridley Scott film that's unavailable. It's it's basically been suppressed since it came out because Scott was so unhappy with it, and it was it was a huge box office disaster. Um, well, in the in sort of the late eighties and early nineties, Scott really struggled for work. Well, the odd thing is though, because because I was working in a record shop in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties, and the soundtrack used to sell really well. Yeah, it's odd. It's odd that sometimes soundtracks do massively well when the film doesn't. Hmm. Um. I mean, Blade Runner as well, I think, had a, a very successful soundtrack and the film oh, yeah. died on its arse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's, and that's also Vangelis. Um, but yeah, I've, I tried to track down a copy of 1492. You just, you can't get it. And the same with Carry On Columbus. The copy I watched is on YouTube. Yeah, me too. In, in full, in its entirety, on, as a single video. Mm. I didn't bother with Christopher Columbus, the discovery, because um, I think it's got Tom Selleck as the King of Spain. <laughs> right. Was that a made-for-TV movie? No. All oh, right. Okay. It's a it's a real movie. Uh, George Coraface, I think his name is pronounced, plays Columbus, and the only thing I've seen him in is as the villain in John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. Right. Okay. Uh, where he plays a Che Guevara type. Yeah. As I say, from the director of A View to a Kill, the best Bond film, which also has a 57-year-old leading man romancing a blonde who's far too young for him. Yeah, first Bond film... Everything connects. Yes, first Bond film I ever saw in the cinema um, when I was, what, I would have been 10 years old, A View to a Kill. Um, And yeah, and and for that reason, for that reason alone, it's my favourite Roger Moore Bond film. It's surprisingly enjoyable, I think. If you can get over how old he looks, mm. there's there's a lot. There's some great music. There's some great photography. Christopher Walken is a really fun villain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the villain at the end tries to uh, escape in an airship with his name written on the side in 40 foot letters <laughs> yeah the one little detail like, that gave him away yeah it's like <laughs> like vanity number plates are for the little people I have a vanity airship <laughs> so uh, Sarah Crow as Fatima the Turkish spy is dispatched to uh, Lisbon to uh, take care of any plans to cross the Atlantic and there's a joke about Lisbonians as well yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, right. um, the, the, sorry just quickly going back to the the Rick Mail and Nigel Planer scene the the black pepper was the purpose of the black pepper spilling on the floor so that they could make a joke about the black pepper market was, was that the sole purpose I think it possibly was. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's odd because there are some jokes I think that work quite well, and there are some that are just oh this will do until we think of something better and then, and then they forget and then they forget to ever change it. Yes, that's what I was thinking. There were there were so many scenes where it it didn't end with a joke or on a gag. It was like they possibly filmed it ending with a joke and a gag, and it was so weak that they cut it out. They just left. You know the the dialogue leading up to the gag. You know what I mean? It's it's funny because there was a, a an interview I saw a while ago with one of the Simpsons writers. I think it was John Schwarzwelder, mm. Um, mm. who said the way he wrote for the series was he would write the first draft in like a day because he would have the, uh, the story in mind and he would just write the whole thing through, and he would just write complete rubbish where the jokes would be. Just the most inane drip gibberish mm. he could think he could think of, just so that there was a line in the script where the joke would go, and then he would talk to the other writers and he would do redrafts and he would beef up the jokes. Yeah. So that was the redrafting process was just coming up with more jokes because the the structure was already there to support it. And that seems to be what's happened here, except they haven't beefed up all the jokes, and then they've just cut the bits that don't work. So it's it winds up a bit too choppy. Mm. Well, it's Dave Freeman who wrote it, and it it's crying out for Talbot Rothwell, I feel. It, I'm sure that there were been writers at the time. I mean, Ben Elton, only a couple of years after this, would do The Thin, Red, uh, the Thin Blue Line, mm-hmm. which is a very old-fashioned style sitcom, deliberately modelled on Dad's Army, in fact, which has a lot of carry-on style humour. Um, you know all the jokes that you know, Inspector Grimm talking about. You know, if anything goes wrong, then it's I'm the one who has to pay for it. Your cock up, my ass. Yeah, <laughs> bit on the nose, isn't it? That was pre-watershed. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, I remember being very disappointed when I first watched that that show because I was expecting great things because you, you know you got Rowan Atkinson, you got Ben Elton, um, and I've been very very disappointed. I have rewatched a couple in recent years and it's not as bad as I remembered. I think my expectations were just too high in 1995. Yeah, I mean, it's it suffered, I think, from the the burden of being the next Blackadder. Mm. And it's not, but it's fine for what it was. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, there's the style of humour there that that would have worked, I think, in a carry-on context. So we're introduced to Columbus, the Map maker has his little map shop in uh, in Lisbon, 
And he sells Martin Clunes a map of the UK, claiming that it's a map of Italy, because he's going on holiday there. Mm. Um, well, next door, we have Ahmed, the Christian convert, uh, barber, bootmaker, cobblers to the Pope, <clears throat> played, by Alexi, played by Alexi Sale. Yeah, and I, I was thinking, because I always do this when I watch films like this, or films in general, I kind of think, who else could play the, you know, recasting? Who else could play that role? And in the case of, I mean, Alexi Sale is fine, but he's, he's not given very much to do. He's certainly not playing Alex. He's not. He's not playing the Alexi Sale character in this. But I could see Mel Smith doing that role, doing it well. Yes, I could. I mean, all the way through, I was thinking, if this were with the classic cast, who'd be playing this character? And in in the case of Ahmed, it's. Hmm, it's one of the more serious characters, maybe, maybe Terry Scott. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, I mean, Columbus would still be Jim Dale, obviously. Yes. Um, although, although, again, sorry to to to, to keep, no, no, carry on. keep uh, flogging this, but I was thinking as well as I was watching it because I think Jim Dale does a really good job. I think Jim Dale is fine. Uh, but I was thinking, would it have been better if they had someone like Michael Palin as Columbus? I see your point there. I mean, he's possibly too big of a name or too prestigious a name to want to have been involved. Mm. And and I think at the time he was in the middle of doing one of his travel shows. Mm. Um, yeah, he would have been doing um, full circle. No, pole to pole. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was maybe a non-starter, but I can I can see that certainly. And it would fit nicely with his his image as the, uh, the the, uh, the 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 gentleman abroad. Yes, indeed, absolutely. Um, and he's and you know we we know he has the comic chops for it. He's he's the, <laughs> he's, he's the one good python left. Yes, and it's also a bridge between the Carry On films, and the so-called alternative comedy uh, crew of the of the 80s and 90s because, you know, you've got Carry On, then you've got someone from Python, and then you've got you know, the comic strip team. Yeah, I mean, it could could, could really be like an all-star, the, like the all-stars of uh, British screen comedy mm. of the last 30 years. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I suppose Kenny Everett was possibly not... A workable choice at that stage, but you know you could have had a couple of other major names like Ronnie Corbett. Yeah, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think where Spike could have fitted into the cast because I'm, I'm surprised he wasn't asked. He the, possibly was the asked. John per- the John Pertwee character. He could have been the John Pertwee character. He could have been yes, because <laughs> John Pertwee only gets about. Does he get about what twenty seconds yep. on the screen? Yeah, he's really not in it that. And it's not in it very much. Yeah. You know, they, there are there are options that they could have taken. They could have really pushed the boat out and tried to make this, you know, a a celebration of generations of British comic talent. But I think they were too focused on trying to make this. No, it has to be like a carry on, but we have to bring in new people, and the new people are going to be the comic strip people, because comic strip is basically a punk carry on. Yeah, there is one addition to the cast that is is um, a bit more mainstream, which I was pleased to see Richard Wilson turning up. 
Yes, and he makes a very good Kenneth Williams substitute. Yes, he does. Because he can do this. He can do the same kind of character, but play him in a very different way. Mm-hmm. He has that sort of exasperated authority figure to him. It's and it 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 shows off Wilson's skill as an actor that there's something Meldrewish about his character, but he's clearly not Victor Meldrew. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's funny that you know in a way that. Wilson was perhaps the most newly minted of all the stars there because he'd it wasn't really until One Foot in the Grave I think a couple of years earlier that he'd really broken out as a a comedy name in his own right rather than just a supporting player yeah I mean he was one of those faces you'd seen for 20 years leading up to One Foot in the Grave you'd seen him in Only When I Laugh and uh, Hot Metal and things like that but he'd never well yeah One Foot was obviously his, um, his his breakout role see there's still time for both of us yeah, he was, he was, he was what, 55 when he got that role? Yes. Have you listened to his radio sitcom, incidentally? Um, no. It's, he, has, he, has, he has a radio sitcom, which is, it's Curb Your Enthusiasm, but with Richard Wilson. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's playing himself with his celebrity friends getting up to all kinds of antics and mischief. Bloody hell, sign me up. Well, hang on, is this, is this recent? Last couple of years, I think they. I think it's still running. They've definitely done about three or four series of it on Radio Four. Oh wow! Okay. It's it's called Believe It. I'm so out of touch with Radio Four in recent years. I used to be an avid listener, and I've and I used to listen to you know. I could see. I could, I kind of saw Ed Reardon as a modern day, Victor Meldrew, in many ways. I suppose that's a, a bit of a cliche to say that now, but. Um, I'd like to see. I'd like to. I'd like to have a Richard Wilson and Ed Reardon kind of crossover. <laughs> it's it's an odd show. There's there's an episode where Richard decides that he's he's achieved everything he wants to do in life. So he like does a final round of seeing all his friends, and then he's going to commit suicide. Jesus. But but by walking into the sea like uh, Reggie Perrin. <laughs> this, is a, this is a really weird subject for a sitcom. Does he uh, does he come back as Martin Wellborn with a <laughs> he beard? No, I think he decides against it because he's had such a nice time with all his friends that he still he thinks he has you know, life still has a lot to offer, and it's not quite it's not it's not quite as cynical as Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's quite sweet in its own way. Um, so Ahmed the barber cuts off someone's ear when he's surprised by Fatima, yeah. and he says, "Oh, don't worry, I'll sew it back on." But he says that into the disembodied ear. Yes, <laughs> I, I like that as a gag. <laughs> Fatima has arrived in her full belly dancing outfit as well. Um, having heard about uh, Columbus's plans, he's visited by uh, Mordecai the Master Mariner, played by Bernard Cribbins, ah, yes. mm-hmm. who has an ancient map in Hebrew of how to reach uh, the the uh, the Far East across the Atlantic. Um, so they head off to see. Um, is it is they go to see the authorities or something? But they're intercepted by the Inquisition. Oh, this is the right. Are they going to the court? The royal court. And, yes, and, to get to get sponsorship for the trip. Yeah, and there's and the, yeah, I did laugh at the the ham sandwich, the little ham Which, sandwich sequence. Before and it's and it's done a very it's someone like Peter Guinness or someone doing the voices. Before you go, would you care for a ham sandwich? <laughs> and and because it's the, it's the test to make sure they're not Jewish or Muslim, mm. and. Mordecai says, "Oh, I, 
I, I can't eat this. And why not? There's no mustard on it. <laughs> it's just, I think, yeah, that's funny. That's mm. like a classic old-fashioned that gag. Is. But it's funny, mm-hmm. and it's delivered by a talented performer. Because Bernard Cribbins is great. He is. Oh, he is. If you ever... If you've ever wanted to hear Bernard Cribbins swear, listener, he swears in Carry On Columbus. He does. What's your your favourite Bernard Cribbins role? Oh. Narrator of the Wombles. Okay. I'm very, very fond of the Railway Children. You know, the the 1975. Oh, yeah. Where he plays... Is it Mr Perks? Is that the character name? I think it is. Perkins? I, I only I only saw the Railway Children a couple of years ago, and I wasn't taken with it. I think you know this is fine, but it's not having the impact on me that I think it does on other people. Uh, listen, I I defy any anyone to watch that film and and sit through the the railway platform scene near the end where um, Ian Cuthbertson returns and uh, Jenny Agatha cries, "Daddy, my daddy." I defy any, yeah. anyone to sit through that without shedding a little tear. Yes, but I think that's that and the stopping the train hit, you know, going off the rails or hitting the barriers or whatever, that's the bits that people remember. Mm. I don't recall really anything else from the movie. Right. There's a sequel coming out. I'm sure there is. <laughs> there usually with, with, with Jenny Agatha. Oh, right. So yeah, the ham sandwich fit that really reminded me actually of horrible histories. Mm. It's the kind of thing they would do, the kind of sort of absurd sketch to illustrate a real yes yeah, historical yeah, yeah. point. So they uh, are they they locked up. Oh no, um, Fatima visits uh, Columbus dressed as a nun and gives him a sleeping draft to try and get the map away from him. But um, the others come in. Yeah, this this scroll, the map, is it? Is it kind of like? Is it the MacGuffin of this film? Not really, because it doesn't drive the whole plot. It it sets things up, mm. but really, once once they get underway, about halfway through the movie, then it's it kind of becomes irrelevant. Mm. Mm. And uh, the, the 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 model MacGuffin I always use is the. Um, the identity of George Kaplan in uh, North by Northwest, when it's uh, it's a made up thing that gets the plot going. Yes, yeah. yeah. But then, mm. and it, and it keeps everything moving to, right towards the end. And then, <laughs> in the scene where Cary Grant has the whole plot explained to him, it's characters walking across an airfield, and everything's drowned out by engine noise. Yes. <laughs> or, or alternatively, it's the um, microfilm with the recipe on it from one of our dinosaurs is missing. I've not seen that. Oh, that's got John Pertwee in it as well. Is that worth watching? Uh, well, it's an early seventies Disney film, mm. Mm. so it's it's a it's a that standard. Mm. It's okay. got Peter Ustinov in yellow face. Oh, that's a pleasing image. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they see the uh, the King and Queen of Spain, and. Columbus goes into his sales pitch and says, oh, you have to speculate to accumulate and you know, we can bring back all the riches of the new world. And um, uh, is, is there a character... Who's, I've written E's husband. Who's E? Oh, right, OK, that would be... It's more, is so that, that's Maureen that's Lippmann, is it? That's Maureen Countess Lippmann, yeah. Esmeralda. Something like that. And, and she says, 
her husband is she says her husband has the canaries which is obviously set up for a gag about oh you know something along the lines of has he seen a doctor no he's the governor of the canaries well she does say oh my husband the count (laughs) yes yes and she manages to say it that almost implies that the um o has been excised yeah (laughs) here's one thing right so you've got leslie phillips as the king of spain Yes, and I'm watching this, and I and I'd always, because I'm you know I've seen as I say I've seen most of the Cameron films, but some of them not for many 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 years, and some of the earlier ones certainly not for twenty odd years or more. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking it's a bit of a it's it. I was thinking that Leslie Phillips wasn't really in many, if any, Carry On films, and then I went back and checked, and he was in a load of well, he was in about three or four, wasn't he at the beginning? He was in Nurse and yeah. Teacher and. Um, uh, Cruising. Cruising. So he was in a number of the early ones, wasn't he? But I, for some reason, I had it in my head that it was it was one of those um, where people say that, you know, like with Porridge, they say that uh, Peter Vaughan was a regular character, but he was only in about, what, two of them? Two yeah. Of the episodes. In the same way, I mean, Jim Dale wasn't in that many of the carry-on films. Neither was Bernard Cribbins. No, So it's I mean, by, by this stage, they were having to stretch a bit mm. to get you know, serious veterans. John Pertwee is only in two of them. Yes. And even though they're very small roles in uh, Cleo and Cowboy. Yeah, yeah. And June Whitfield, she, so she's the queen. She's, she was in... I know she, she was very prominent in um, Carry On Abroad. And Carry On Girls as well, I think. Oh, yes, because she was... Yeah, that's right. Um, so that Mrs. Prodworthy, or Mrs. Noseworthy. Mrs. Prodworthy, the, yeah. The, the local <laughs> feminist. The town feminist. Here's the thing, actually. C- Kenneth Connor. Now, I don't know whether he was asked and declined or just wasn't even asked, but Kenneth Connor should have been in this film because he was still going strong in 1992. 1992, that was the year that Alo finished and he was in that very frequently. I'm, I think he, I'm not sure his health would have been great by that point. But, but to, to my mind, he should have been the king. Yeah, it should have been him and Barbara Windsor. Um... I mean, the, but um, yeah, one of them didn't want to do it, and the other one, for reasons of their own, either wasn't asked. I mean, Leslie Phillips is a fine substitute mm. because he has that you know, that somewhat aristocratic air to him anyway. Mm. Mm-hmm. But um, Kenneth, I think Kenneth Connor works better when he's sort of a, a little a little man, which is why I could I could see him being uh, Bart Columbus in you know a, a 60s or early 70s version of the story yes, he sort of works he, yes. he works as like the, the sidekick of the younger brother yes well if 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 this had been at the height of the carry-ons if this had been made in let's say 69 70 something like that would would sid james not have been columbus that's a good point i mean it well around then you had sid james and jim dale together in carry on again doctor mm. and there the balance is they, they, the two of them almost have like a, a student mentor relationship. Yeah. So, maybe there you'd have Jim Dale as the younger brother, and he would be, oh, yeah. Christopher, and the, and hmm. Sid James would be the would be the older brother who isn't Christopher. And, so you could do it like that. And Barbara Windsor would be the Fatima. Character. Exactly. I mean. I mean. Yeah, clearly, she, mm. <laughs> clearly that's the Barbara Windsor character <laughs> because she spends a lot of the movie wearing very little yep. and 
and being all seductive and blonde. Mm. Having said that, there is another character in this who's who's quite bawdy and sort of seductive and blonde, and it's the um, is it Rebecca Lacey? It's Chiquita. Oh yes. Well, maybe that could have been Joan Sims. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Bart meets a young woman called Maria, who's I think Esmeralda's niece, who's mm. being taken to marry. Duke John Pertwee. Yes. And the two of them hit it off. And Bart brags of knowing painters because he paints pictures of women in in the back room of the map shop. There's a whole thing there with him painting nude ladies. Mm. Um, Columbus, uh, in in his pitch, asks for uh, a, a huge list of things in return for going like the being the Duke of this and that and 10% of the treasure and uh, they're about to uh, say no but I think Torquemada has a look at the map and agrees to send them off is that well, right? I think, well I think I think I think it's like uh, Queen is is it Queen Isabella that June Whitfield is playing she she, yes. she's, she kind of is wearing the royal trousers in this relationship and I think there's that scene of her and Leslie Phillips in bed and they have to share the one reading candle, don't they? Oh, yes. Um, and she she basically essentially says, uh, you, you know, yes, he gets 10%, but you get 90%. At the moment, you, you, you're getting 100% of nothing. So I think, I think it's June Whitfield more than anyone that sort of persuades the king to uh, authorise this voyage. So they... They go to their uh, their ship that they've acquired, yes. and they they arrive at the cheapest looking dockside set I have ever seen. <laughs> it should be it should be said that the sets and the production design on this film are atrocious. What do you think the the scene in Blackadder Two when they're at the docks with the sign saying "Get it here"? Do you think that was more authentic looking? That was like a blank wall, and it was grimy. <laughs> but when I say a blank wall, it was like a brick effect wall. But here you've got the docks, you've got shops, and it, it just looks cheap. There are like the scene in um, the Sultan's room. It's just there's lots of just blank walls that are clearly just yeah. plasterboard. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the same and the same in the uh, the Spanish throne room. It looks like they they've just knocked it up overnight, really, really quickly. And we well we haven't it's, we haven't got to uh, when they get to the Americas yet. Because that's something else, isn't it? <laughs> or, the, or the or the indoor jungle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Also, I did, I'm not sure they had jungles in that part of America. Well, we'll come to that. So, because no one wants to sign up, Columbus starts a, a like a carnival barker act to uh, attract the attention of the crew, and I think that's a little like a a meta callback to Jim Dale playing Barnum on stage. Oh, right. Could be, yeah. Um, with uh, it's a picture on Wikipedia of him with uh, Meryl Streep. They've worked together. It's it's easy to forget that Jim Dale is a huge star on the stage. He's this legendary figure. Jim, but, Jim um, Dale, yeah, because he wrote. He was such a, a versatile guy because he wrote Georgie Girl, didn't he? The song. Yeah. Um, and he's he's of interest to me as well because obviously he was in. Um, Digby, the biggest dog in the world, which features uh, Spike Milligan. <laughs> of course. But yeah, I mean, he's a songwriter, stage star. I mean, um, 
he got renewed fame in the US about 10 years after this because he was the narrator of the unabridged Harry Potter audiobooks. Oh, of course he was, yes. That's right. See, that's, then, why didn't they just use Stephen Fry? Why did they need someone else to record for the US market? Different publishing company. Oh, I see. Okay, fair enough. And shortly after that, he became narrator of a series called Pushing Daisies, which was this sort of fantasy crime comedy drama about a man who could bring people back to life for two minutes at a time. All right. And he and he works in a pie shop and he brings his dead girlfriend back to life, but he can't touch her again or, or the curse will be lifted and she'll turn into a corpse again. And it was this wildly convoluted <laughs> right. set up for a series, but but narrated by Jim Dale in this sort of light fairy tale style. Yeah, um, that show got cancelled quite quickly. When I first when I first saw Jim when I saw Columbus Jim Dale as Columbus at the docks in this scene, and I, was, I wrote down it looks like he's got uh, an upside down a red upside down dog's bowl on his head it just looked like they'd gone to i don't know pets are us and bought a load of dog's bowls for the cast to put on I, their heads do you know what i mean i think i think broadly speaking that's a historically accurate mm. item of headgear mm. but it yes you're right it looks like he's wearing a flower pot <laughs> yeah um jews and uh, arabs and muslims are being deported to africa so Columbus starts signing them up to be crewmen, uh, including uh, uh, Fat- Fatima grab- tries grabbing the map under his uh, cloak again and makes a joke about him being a big boy. Mm. And there's a recruitment poster as well in the, the Kitchener style that's with Columbus. R- that's right. Nice little touch. And we're introduced to Don Juan Felipe, played by Richard Wilson, who's been sent as the accountant for the trip. And there's also... They, they decide to go to the prison to, to recruit crewmen from there, and they meet the governor of the prison, and it's Julian Clary. Mm. Julian Clary, who is the replacement Hawtrey. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I, I, I really like him in this, and he actually forms quite a nice double act with Richard Wilson. He does. And again, there you go. You, it, you could imagine Hawtrey and Williams... In, in that scene, in the um, they're in the they're in the ship's hold, aren't they? They think it's a cabin, but it's essentially they're in the ship's hold, and all the the food's being lowered in there, and they think that's just for them. Yes. So they start eating and drinking everything. Yeah, but the, but they have quite a nice chemistry, and they spark off each mm. other quite well, mm. even though they're, they're very different types of character. Mm. So they um, they recruit some prisoners: a poisoner, an arsonist, a serial killer, but the kind of serial that you grow because that's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the, and the, so these are um, we've got Keith Allen. Uh, was that Keith Allen when he was still a decent human being? Uh, no, that never occurred. Right. Well, but, but before he would play pranks on people by taking his penis out and putting it on people's shoulders. Was it... While it was still attached, yeah, yeah, I well, should stress. Well, 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 did he carry a stepnet around with him? <laughs> well, they'd be sitting down. Oh, I see. Okay, it's not what you want when you're tucking into your pie and chips. No, I mean he's <laughs> he's an awful man. Um, but Jack Douglas plays the serial killer. I've always had a problem with Jack Douglas. I, I always too. I always felt he was a bit of an interloper to the Carry On series. He, he he came in quite late, didn't he? Relatively speaking. 
Yes. And I've never really liked the Alfred Epitomus character. I've never, I've never found that funny. Um, and funny, funny enough, I recommend. I, I have not read it, but I saw on what was that? I saw on some site that uh, his his autobiography was was on eBay or something. And I, I mentioned it to Gary, uh, our mutual friend Gary. Gary bought it, and um, he's he's read out you know we've had skype calls he's read out a few sort of choice extracts from jack douglas's autobiography and it's incredibly self-serving you know jack douglas essentially claims that he is the uh, you know uh, he's been carrying british light entertainment on his shoulders for the last sort of 50 years you know <laughs> oh dear it's not it's not quite up there with the um uh sing lofty uh <laughs> donna stell i forgot that Donna Stell, Donna Stel, yeah, his, his notorious <laughs> yes. autobiography. Yeah, no. no, not quite that bad. I just remembered another detail, actually. The original actor who I th- was certainly offered, probably cast as the King of Spain, and then died during pre-production, another carry-on actor dying off, Frankie Howard. Oh, I can see that. Again, only did a couple of carry-ons, but... That counts. And, and around this time, because he died almost, he, he died at sort of the height of his popularity because he'd had a resurgence, hadn't he, in the early he, 90s? He was, into the, his, he was in like his third or fourth wave of success. Yeah, that's true. Um, because somehow his, his act connected with a young student audience and he got a new show on Channel 4 yeah. and he was popular and successful all over again. And then, you know time and health just caught up with him suddenly I remember that weekend because Benny went the same weekend didn't he yes I remember um, and yeah it kind of went the other way for Benny Hill because his his career creatively had been in decline for a very very long time and his show had finally been cancelled and then almost immediately he died yes so it was just like a long slow no <laughs> Like a funicular railway gradually lowering him into the grave. <laughs> Shouldn't laugh. Mm. No, but it's a funny image. Yes. Um, whereas, I mean, I know that there's a film about a bit. There's a BBC film about the life of Frankie Howard, and it focuses on his his homosexuality and you know, his struggles with that and and his his personal problems. I think there's a a more interesting film to be made that would perhaps contrast that with his wildly varying career success. Yes. Because, the, you know, it, I say, he was in his, like his third or fourth cresting wave of being a big star. Well, let's point this out. So he, he was big in the, well, sort of early to mid 50s. He had, he had quite a lot of success. He was in the Lady Killers and things like that, wasn't he? And, and yeah. He was on radio a lot. And then he kind of everything kind of was he in the sort of fell away for a while, and then the establishment club. Uh, he started appearing at the establishment, didn't he? And that yeah, and he sort of caught onto the coattails of the, the satire boom. Um, and then rode that with up Pompeii. That's right. Sort of into the early seventies. Yeah. And then it went quiet again for about ten years, and then by the mid eighties, he was just sort of catching on again, and. They got got a show on Channel Four and was doing student reviews, and was still doing the same kind of material. He never really changed his act. He would, you know, it was it was new material. But it for about forty years he just continued to have success with successive generations. And also, I remember that they repeated up Pompeii on 
I don't know, BBC Two in the, it would have been 90, wondering if it was before or after he died, but it was 91 or 92 then. Yeah, I remember them repeating that um, at a, you know, fairly sort of prominent spot at time, time, you know, it was, it was yeah, it was, it, was, it was like a week. Yeah, it was like a weeknight nine o'clock show. Yeah. I remember watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's also his uh, of historical interest, his notorious lost sitcom. Was that when Churchill said to me, or something? Is that what it was? Yeah, then, Ch- then Churchill said to me, which was made in early 1982, and was going to be like a like the next chapter in the Up Pompeii saga, where mm. his next descendant was a private uh, working in Churchill's war rooms. Yes. But it was scheduled to be broadcast around the time of the Falklands War. So it was pulled and then sat on a shelf for 10 years mm. <laughs> and was eventually premiered on UK Gold. What's it like? Have you seen it? Uh, well, a, a couple of years after that, I think it's 1997, it finally aired on BBC Two and it was on a, a really weird, like half past four on Sunday afternoon. Right. It's not great. It's not awful. But it's just—it's not as—it's not as funny as Up Pompeii, I think, because it—it it didn't have as much uh, raw material to work with. Mm. But the—it's the, odd that it should have sat on the shelf for ten years. I think you know, by the time yeah you know, the the dust had settled and they thought, well, now we can show this this military sitcom again. Then by that point, Howard was out of favour, and then he was on Channel Four and thought, well, he's not BBC material yeah. now. Yeah. So UK Gold was probably quite keen to have you know that something you know uh, you know this lost uh, original work you know it's like the sitcom equivalent of Orson Welles The Other Side of the Wind. Yes. <laughs> yeah, half past four on oh, a Sunday oh, afternoon is the graveyard for sitcoms, really, isn't it? Because uh, I seem to remember. I mean, that, but, uh, do you remember the on, Royal on Bodyguard, BBC... the David Jason, the much trumpeted David Jason comeback sitcom from about I don't know, I... ten years ago. I watched the first couple of episodes because the first episode was on Boxing Day night. Oh yeah. It was yes. a huge it was huge promotion behind it. Mm. And I watched it and I thought, yeah, that's fine. It's you know, David Jason is a very talented comic actor. It's quite funny. It's not great. I watched the second episode and thought, okay. That's that I'm done now. <laughs> and that's right. And I think it then got shunted, unless I'm very much mistaken. It got it got shunted to Sunday afternoons. The rest of the series, I think. I I don't think so. I think it. I think it ran out its time slot. Oh, did it on uh, on a weeknight? Yeah. Maybe it was repeats. Because repeats, because, because I think there were I think there were repeats because there were a couple of sitcoms I remember that started in prime time and then were shunted to Sunday afternoon, and uh, just just there and that was Prince Among Men oh, yeah. with Chris Bar- with Chris Barry as a retired footballer. And a perfect state, which was a knockoff of Passport to Pimlico. Yes, yes. Again, to, to quote Gary, uh, a friend Gary, uh, he, he he loves uh, the phrase "moved to a less competitive slot" when it comes to tele programs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the, it's the TV equivalent of um, the audience becoming more selective. <laughs> anyway, we're straight we're straight a long way away from Carry On Columbus. Well, we're still just about talking about Frankie Howard. That's true. Um, so everyone's getting on board the ship, and um, as I say, Richard Wilson and uh, Julian Clary hit it off. And Julian Clary gets to say, hello, sailor. Yes. Because, I mean, if nothing else, you really do have to get the, sh- the catchphrases into it, because that's what the audience have come to see. 
they've not they've not come for you know deep socio-political commentary. They've come for the gags. Yeah. I mean, when 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 they walk into the throne room, you want Leslie Phillips to say, "Oh, hello." Oh, I was just going to say he doesn't say that. He doesn't even even say "ding dong." Yeah, I mean, it's weird because it's it's a carry-on film, you know. Fan services allowed. I I went to see the new Ghostbusters film the other day, and I hated it. So I believe. And it's, fa- <laughs> I know, um, but it, and it's absolutely filled with fan service and references to the previous film, and it just swamps everything else. Mm. And I thought, yeah, but in a in a carry on film, you can do that. You can have the catchphrases because they have the catchphrases in all the other movies all the time. Yes. So why are they not doing it now? It's it's. I mean, maybe it reflects the fact that the part was not written for Phillips. It was written for. If anyone has written for Frankie Howard, but do you think that the filmmakers had an eye on the the American market? And they thought, well, I think they probably did, mm. but de- depend. You know, you can still leave stuff in. Like you could have had like Richard Wilson's character telling someone to stop messing about, and if it was in context, then that's a gag for the people who get it. And if not, then it's just another line of dialogue. Yeah. What about if? Uh, what's his name? Don Juan Felipe, the Richard Wilson character. Yeah. What if some point in the script he gets to say, "I don't believe it"? <laughs> Would that have just completely jumped the shark, or, or what? <laughs> it depends. If you have that as like the the punchline to a scene, mm. and you and you, then it's edited to give the audience enough time to recover from their huge belly laugh, <laughs> that that would be fine. Um. And I think, I don't know, I mean, maybe they were hoping that they would break American, but the, the, the thing that's worth noting is, of all the three Columbus movies released in the UK, not only was this the most successful, it made more than the other two put together. Really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, and even then, it wasn't, even then, it wasn't very successful. So the other two were total you, dead, dead, on, dead on arrival. Did it make its money back, at least? You know? Um, I I'm not sure. I believe it did. I mean, I would hope so because it looks so bloody cheap. Yeah. Um, but if just, if it just, if it had been a bigger hit, it would have there would have been a another one, wouldn't there? I think because the the critical response was so poor, that kind of put put a nail in it. The yeah. um, uh, supposedly there, there was a poll in two thousand four, um, published in the Guardian that uh, said that according to uh, British film professionals, Carry On Columbus was the worst British film of all time. Well, that's rubbish. Um, which, yeah, which is obviously rubbish. I mean, you have, I mean, I've seen Island of Terror, where people are menaced by you know, man-eating pancakes. That's <laughs> a total. Shit. Well, it's not. It's not even the worst Carry On film. Actually, it's it's. No, Carry, carry On Emmanuel. I've not seen it all. I'm confident. I mean, I mean Carry On. Carry On England. Oh, that's is Pretty. Yeah. Gruesome. Some some of those those very sort of late period ones are I mean Carry On Emmanuel at least is trying to do something different, Carry On England and Carry On uh, a Carry On Abroad Carry On Behind, yeah, which, which is just rehashing camping quite poorly. I rewatched that maybe a year ago, and it's pretty bad. It's not too bad. It's certainly not as bad as Carry On England, which is, which is. Yeah, I'm not averse to nudity. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's just got it's got <laughs> really blatant nudity for the sake of it, and barely any. That's of why it. he's got. 
See, so you're the first to nudity, and that's why I say, well, yeah, I know that's why that's why, that's why your camera's switched off on your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> but you're in your, your bathrobe, aren't you? Well, I've, I've just had a bath. I've got an excuse. What's yours? <laughs> and I'm recording in my conservatory, which is just all glass, so all the neighbours. Oh, is that what you're? Oh, is that what you're calling it? <laughs> oh. I was hoping to get some more of the catchphrases in during the recording. It's actually harder than yeah. what I was expecting. Harder, boom, boom, harder than I was expecting. That's what she said. This. Um, <laughs> Can I just bring up? I'm, in, I'm enjoying myself recording this more than I wasn't watching the film. Yeah, well, that's that's good. That's good. We, we, there's a there's a bit we're coming up to in the in the plot which I found it. I thought it was a really weak play on words or pun or not even a pun, I don't know what you'd call it, is is when they talk about the bar mitzvah triangle. And I found that to be, I just thought that's really, really bad. It kind of, if you, if you try not to think about it too hard, it kind of almost could sound a bit like Bermuda, but it doesn't really, do, do if, you know what I mean? If if they had been able to make a joke out of it, like the, the, the tip of the ship had been cut off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or something like that. I mean, obviously, that's not obviously that's that's circumcision rather than bummits, so it's not the same thing. But, but still, yeah, they need to. You can't you can't just say something, pull pulled out of the air and say that's a joke. You actually have to connect to something. And I wondered whether I actually made me it made me wonder whether because um, Bernard Cribbins' character is Jewish, and it made me wonder: did they make his character Jewish purely and simply so that they could do that gag? Not sure they did, but it, it wouldn't. I wouldn't have put it past them. Well, that's well. We also do have the ham sandwiches gag earlier. Oh yeah, that's true. I think. I think that they yeah. like, oh, I think it's there as a little bit of like, yes, yes, we did read one article about what life was like in Columbus's time. Oh yeah, Jews, Jews and Arabs are being persecuted. Well, let's have something like that in the script because that will fill it out a little bit. Mm. And then it's sort of mm. there's there's no need for him to be Jewish, but it's just oh, an extra bit of historical color. So that we can pretend that this film is, you know, based on anything. I've just got this this image of Dave Freeman, the, the writer, who I believe had ten days to get the script written, and and um, uh, bastardized an old script, took bits from an old script for a, a Carry On TV special or something as well. Um, but I've just got this image in my head of Dave Freeman pacing around his room with the typewriter there think trying to think of another word for bermuda that you know that would or a word that sounds a bit like bermuda and, and eventually just thinking i'll oh, sod it bar mitzvah that'll do you know but but bermuda <laughs> um so they uh, they set off and um Fatima tries to start a fire on the ship, but uh, someone, I think, urinates on it and puts it out. Yeah. Um, uh, the poisoner has been assigned as ship's cook, uh, so he's made goulash out of the rats. Mm. And and he announces that the food's ready. He says, "Poison up! I mean, grub up!" Yeah. I like I like that. Yeah. He's just he's he's so preoccupied with the poisoning. <laughs> He just loves murder, um, but yes, they get into the fog, and it's it's the bar mitzvah triangle, and we get 
uh, Bernard Cribbins' line, if there's one thing that scares the shit out of me, it's sea serpents. <laughs> and he delivers it with such conviction as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they crash into another ship um, in the in the fog and they go aboard and the ship's deserted and the, the table's all set for a meal. And obviously that's a Mary Celeste mm, gag. Mm, mm. So they help themselves with the food and they find all sorts of treasure there. And we discover that the ship is actually docked and that they're at the Canary Islands. That's but it. it's so foggy that they can't actually see the dock on the other side of the ship. So um, Dame uh, Maureen Lippmann thinks that there are pirates on board and they manage to escape. No, they don't. They were captured. <laughs> yeah, See? yeah, that's it. And we've got Peter Gilmore as the governor of the Canaries. Uh, yeah, who's been in one carry-on film, I think. He's been, I think he's been in a couple, but only very, very small oh. parts. There were. Um, but obviously he was famous for playing James... Is it James and Eden in the Aneedon line? Yeah. So, Which is a proper serious drama. Mm. And quite good, actually, listener. Mm. My mum's favourite programme back in the day. Yeah, my, one of my mum's favourite programmes as well. One of your mum's? How many mums have you got? One of my, one of my mum's favourite programmes oh, okay. as well. <laughs> Wait for the punctuation. <laughs> Columbus is told that he has to abandon his trip or he'll be hanged. So he says, oh, OK. Right, oh, right OK, everybody, we're going back to Spain now. Wink. Yeah. <laughs> um... So they set off again. Um, Fatima tries to steal the scroll from Columbus while he's asleep, but he wakes up, and she says, "Ah, oh, go back to sleep. It's just an erotic dream you're having." Yes. Uh, I'd like. And, um, I'd liked if she she, you know, got out a knife and started spreading some Philadelphia all over his thighs or something. <laughs> it's not that kind of movie. <laughs> well, because it's naughty man, it's Sarah Crow, you know. I know. Yeah, the thing that I know her best from, hmm. and the only other thing that I've seen her in, is Philadelphia commercials. Well, she was in um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, wasn't she? I haven't seen that film in at least 15 years. Hmm. So I'll take your word for that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on, on deck, they're talking about... Um, uh, it's uh, Julian Clary and Bernard Cribbins are talking about, I think, sharks or something. And Clary says, oh, do you, oh, do you think they'd eat me whole? And, and Cribbins says, no, they'd spit that part out. No, 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 you, sorry, Jeremy. Sorry, Jeremy, to pull you up here. But but I wrote this down. That's between, what's his name? Jack um, Douglas. Jack Douglas and um, Rebecca Lacey. Ah. Because Jack Douglas is, is looking at the sharks circling in the water. And Rebecca Lacey says, uh, he says, oh, don't, you know, don't get too close to the side or you might fall in. Uh, and there's sharks, and she says, "Oh, do you think they'd eat me, eat me whole?" And he says, "No, they they spit that bit out." And I wrote that down because I thought that's, I mean, it's a it's a it's a good gag, but it's quite you know. <laughs> near near the, well, I don't want to say near the knuckle, no. <laughs> but it would have worked with Julian Clary as well, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I, 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 I haven't, in my notes, I haven't specified who said that, so I just assumed it was him. Right. That, that is a very Julian Clary gag. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, We've got the mutiny. Right, We've got the mutiny, haven't we? Or the Ted. Oh, yes. The, yeah, because, yes, the uh, the crew mutinies because they're fed up with, say, you know, they're running out of food and that kind of thing. And um, Columbus and, and Tima, which is 
Fatima with a beard claiming to be uh, Alexei Sale's brother or nephew or mm, something. Mm. So, Timothy. Yeah. Mm. Um, they, they share a look and he realises that he loves her. And um, there's a line, is that a line that says, oh, when he realises wearing a false beard, he says, oh, thank goodness, I thought you were much older. Something like that. Mm, Again, I, didn't pick up I didn't. That. I didn't. I didn't see this film that long ago. Maybe a, maybe a month or two, but so much of it has already just <laughs> evaporated from my mind. I mean, it's a carry-on film. This is this. You know, it's not. It's meant to be sort of light, fun, disposable entertainment. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be so ephemeral. You know, like mm. tissue paper in a thunderstorm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's you know, it's uh, it's, it's 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 not plot he- heavy, is it? No, um, but um, Columbus finds out that she's really a woman, but she's a Turkish spy. So he asks for the recipe because he loves Turkish pie. Yeah. Or some or something, something like that. Um, but the crew are going to hang Columbus. So he says, "Oh, oh, okay, but if only you know, if only I could go back to my my pirate days when when I had all that hidden treasure, which which only I know where it is." Mm. And they say. Okay, well, we'll give you one last chance then. Oh, someone we haven't mentioned, of course, is um, Don Henderson, of course. Oh yes, he plays one of the um, the crew. Mm. Uh, and it, yes, and it's, it's, it, I yes, think Don Henderson is the one leading the mutiny, I think, isn't he? Yes, and he's at his most Don Henderson. <laughs> he's, yes. I mean, I mean, he 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 looks like a stereotype pirate. He looks like Long John Silver, but with both legs normally. Yes, but he's but he's really. Going for it here. He is, and and uh, I think it's he. I think he. They, they, it's at this point that they've, they're hanging Columbus, and then that's the point that that they spot land, and they believe that yes. they've uh, found their way to China, but they haven't, obviously. No, they haven't, because they're spotted from the beach by a, a Native American. <laughs> yes. Played 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 by Chris Langham. By Chris Langham. Um, but the get the gag with the Native Americans is they all have Brooklyn accents, yeah. which, I, which I quite I, I quite I like that. Was, I like that. So did I. I thought that was fantastic, mm. and they're all sort of like stereotype American, you know, New Yorker types, yes. but they're Native Americans. <laughs> yeah. So you got you um, got Chris Langham. You've got is it Charles uh, Fleischer? Charles Charles Fleischer is the um, the tribal leader. Yeah. Who is. Best known, I guess, as the voice of Roger Rabbit, to me at least. I mean, that's where you have the Phil. I mean, that character, with no effort at all, I thought, well, that's Phil Silvers. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like it's the it's the fast talking American con man. It's clearly a Phil Silvers type. And and he should play it with the glasses on. Yes. <laughs> and actually, this is the bit where this has got. Probably my favourite scene in the film, which is where Columbus meets the chief, and the chief offers him a cigar, and Columbus starts eating it. Yeah, and I think Bernard Cribbins says, "What does it taste like?" And he says, "Horse shit." I just, <laughs> and then he sees he sees the chief lighting his cigar, and he says, "Oh, they." Uh, they cook it while you eat it. So, so he sets fire to the end and still starts 
still chews the end of the cigar. What does it taste <laughs> like now? Still tastes like horse shit. <laughs> I thought there was a lovely little little sequence. There's um yes, yeah, as they arrive in the camp as well and are led towards the chief, the the soundtrack actually plays Hail to the Chief. Oh, I didn't... And when they're doing right. and when they're doing their sign language bit to try and sort of mime to the the uh, the the natives who they assume are Chinese. Yes. <laughs> the, yes. The chief elder goes. The chief elder goes. Oh God! Not another mime troop. <laughs> and, and later says, "Oh, we don't want any goddamn immigrants here." Mm. Yeah, I could have done with more of that. I, I think the, the the scene with the the wisecracking Americans. I mean, it could have been it could have been really bad. It could have been done really badly, but I think it was done pretty competently. Worked pretty well. I I think because it, it's it's leaning into comedy stereotypes of national characteristics. Yeah. The way that Allo Allo does. So it's kind of the, the way it sort of cross pollinates Native Americans and New Yorkers. I think that works really well, and it's it's silly enough to I think sidestep any offence that it might cause. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully. Yes. I think that's certainly the intention. Oh, yeah. Um, but they're eventually able to explain that they you know, will we'll trade. Um, <laughs> that says, ah, ah, well, we can, we can trade you these. And they, and they have a tomato. Says, that's, that's, that's very nice, but we want gold. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's a kind of a, there's a gag about the aphrodisiac qualities of tomatoes, isn't there? Uh, yeah. Because tomatoes are full of vitamin E, aren't they? And I think that that kind of gets your pecker up, so I believe. Um, and I've not written it down, but there's a gag about some know, buff young Native American eating a tomato that Julian Clary makes. I've, I've not written it down. Oh, he certainly looks full of juice or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. I know. Actually, the the film suddenly has quite a strong third act because this we've got the change of location, we've got this new bunch of characters. And it's given. It's now got to. There's there's some tension. There's potential for conflict there. It's got a bit of structure all of a sudden, rather than just a bit sort of aimless, mm. as a lot of the rest of the film is. It's odd that it should suddenly snap into focus. Yes. Um, but uh, they're they're taken off to look for the gold mine, but um, along the way they they've not. The, the Europeans haven't brought any food or provisions or anything. So they trade food from the, the natives in return for their armour. And then um, later they, they think they might need some weapons. So they trade... Oh no, they need some more food. So they trade their weapons for more food. And they wind up basically <laughs> um, having to trade in their clothes. At which point Tima has to trade in her clothes and she's still wearing the belly dancing outfit. Mm. Yeah, and this is because you've got this shaman, what is he, a rainmaker, shaman type character who keeps invoking the spirit of, of is it uh, Ungapoka, I think. Yes. And they think that Ungapoka has now had, has basically turned a man into a woman. Uh, <laughs> which so I'm not sure if they actually believe that or they're saying that for the purposes of Columbus and the crew. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, because they're supposed they're, they're otherwise portrayed as being quite canny, mm. um, quick-witted types. Yes. But you know the, the the script is forcing them to bend in strange directions. Mm. Um, back at the uh, 
the encampment, Columbus has been given up for dead and Don Juan Felipe decides he's going to take over. Yes, yes. Um, but so there's a lot of running around and they, they fall into the mine and there's a giant spider and the, there's a, they have to, have to hide from a big boulder but they get run over by it. And it makes me, well, this is clearly, this is clearly Indiana Jones. Yeah, and, but it's so bad. It's such a poor special effect with that round. It's, it's, it's the round rock like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And also, um, um, I think Spielberg was inspired by an old Karl Barks comic. Ah. From back in the 50s, I think, where there was a, um, a large round boulder that was going to crush Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Something like that, anyway. Uh, but the, 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 round, the round rolling rock in Carol and Columbus is, is uh, not very convincing, shall we say. No. But it makes me think, you know, they could have done a, if if the series had continued in the eighties, they would definitely have done a like a carry on Indiana Jones. Yeah, probably. Well, the, right, no, they'd have done. They'd have surely done, and I'm surprised they, mind you, they the last one was seventy eight, or Emmanuel was seventy eight, yeah. wasn't it? I'm su- yeah. if they'd gone on, they'd have invariably done a, a one set in space, wouldn't they? Carry on. Carry on space. Carry on orbiting. Or something. There, I don't know. <laughs> there were there were plans for, a, for there were plans in the sixties for Carry On Spaceman, but that was dropped, and it was going to be like a space race right. type story okay. rather, rather than science fiction. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot they could have done. I mean, I could easily imagine like Sid James as Darth Vader. Yes. Yeah, that have maybe that have been that have made space balls before space balls. There's actually a very good mashup video I saw online where um, all of Darth Vader's dialogue has been replaced with Kenneth Williams. Oh, right. That sounds good. It's it's fantastic. I'll, tr- I'll try and remember to put a link underneath because it's... it's oh, oh, I do feel queer. <laughs> I'm, and, and, and later when he's sort of pointing and ranting and raving, I'm a man, do you hear me? I'm a man! <laughs> I can picture it with the nostrils flared. <laughs> with his vent, with his vent flaring. <laughs> so the uh, the Europeans arrive back at the camp. Uh, he's uh, Columbus has offered a cigar, and he says, "No thanks, I'm not hungry." Yes. Um, but um, they, well, I can't read my own writing here. Well, they're palmed off with oh, fake gold, aren't they? Yes, in return for weapons. Yes. And and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And. Um, Alexi Sell says, "Oh, you were, uh, oh, I, I, I can't go back, or I'll have my emoluments cut off, or something like that." And then this is, "Ah, you, you mean like a eunuch?" Mm. And it's, 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 it really kills the the joke stone dead. It's really odd yeah. at that stage, yeah. Because yeah. normally they just let it, just let it sit. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, we know what that is. You don't need to. Yeah. Well, someone may, explain it. When he said that, someone else may as well have just said, "You mean they're going to cut your bollocks off?" You know, may as well. Oh, he said. Oh, they'll, oh, they'll, they'll, oh, but they'll cut off my emoluments and my bollocks. <laughs> that would have been better. <laughs> so they sail back to Spain, leaving Alexi, Alexi Sail and Don Felipe, Don Felipe to uh, stay behind as um, as ambassadors. Mm. They bring they bring the gold back to the court, but 
they test it and it's fake. Mm. Actually, I like that they, they come into the throne room and they have the like showgirls coming in behind them with like the ostrich feathers and everything. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the gold is uh, taken away by the Inquisition because it's heathen gold since the natives weren't baptised because they didn't have a priest sent with them. They sent an accountant instead. That's it. But it turns out... To- but it turns out to be a trick because the Inquisitor was actually Bart in disguise. So they keep the gold. Uh, Columbus, as ship's captain, marries Bart to his beloved Maria and then retires to his cabin with Fatima. And she says the film's title as they're about to get up to all kinds of business. Mm. <laughs> and then we have... And then, and then over the end credits, we have a song by Malcolm McLaren, the most... <laughs> the, the most carry-on of composers... Oh, it's like it's techno rave, isn't it? Yeah, it's so out of place. Mm. It's 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 like being slapped in the ear. Yeah. Well, the music itself, the music all, all the way through it, it wasn't in keeping with the usual carry on music. No, it's John Dupre, who is um, um, Eric Idle's usual musical collaborator, who also I think did the music for One Foot in the Grave. Oh, okay. And it's. Uh, it's yeah it's the thing about the original music the eric rogers music is it's proper orchestral music i mean there's a there's a wonderful um clip of uh carry on a, a, a suite of carry on music being performed at the proms all right uh-huh. and so you have like the, the theme from carry on camping this or, <laughs> this all this massively orchestrated version of one man went to mow you know, wonderful bouncy played by a huge orchestra and the composer's clearly having a whale of a time and the audience is really getting into it and it, and it has this all the all of this this wonderful at its best this great orchestral sound to it mm. this warp this warmth but the the Dupre music i think is too it's too synthesized it's too it just sounds like it's done on the cheap Yes, it does. Too much. Of the, I think. I think the the film's biggest problem is it had a two and a half million pound budget, but it still looks like it's really done on the cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I mean, overall, I think it's it's entertaining for what it is. It's not far from being the worst British film of all time. As we said, we've been re- recounting some of the jokes. Some of them are genuinely funny, and clever. There's. There's, a, there's enough, like, there's three or four good laughs in this movie. That's enough for a comedy. Yeah. That's, that's you know, above the, the you know, it passes the baseline quite comfortably. Yeah. It's fine. It is. It's, 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 it became fashionable to slag it off, didn't it? I think because the carry-on films were, like, you know, the thing that your dad liked. Yes. Yeah, you, know, you know, the you know, working men's club type comedy. And... You're right. They they did go out of fashion, and they were seen as very sort of embarrassing and unpopular. And the idea that there would be be a new one, I think, in the midst of this era where people suddenly seemed uh, concerned from one direction or another about political correctness. Oh, we, oh, we can't have to carry on films anymore. They're not politically correct. Mm. They're on ITV all the time. It's fine. I wonder how many people went to see it in the cinema in '92 who went to see it on the strength of it having Rick Mail. And um, Alexis Sale in it, and and yeah. went to see it, and just sort of left a bit nonplussed by it, and then word of mouth just basically said, "It's a shit film," and it's just kind of just grew and grew and grew. 
British cinema at the time was also really, really in the doldrums. Yes. Um, I've, I think on the episode about Blame It on the Bellboy, we talked about how this was like that was the absolute dying breath of a particular brand of British film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of years later, I mean, literally two years after this came out, we had Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And, and, and then Shallow Grave came out the same year, and suddenly British cinema was revived like odd bod. Funny enough, both films featuring cast members from uh, Carry On Columbus. So you've got oh yeah, Keith Allen. Keith Allen as the as the corpse. Yeah, who gets chopped up? Ah, mm. oh, yeah, that's, that's my favourite role of his. <laughs> getting chopped into pieces by Christopher Eccleston. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think to be honest, this sits comfortably alongside most of the Carry On canon. It does look cheap, but then Carry On Henry looks incredibly cheap. Um, whenever, whenever they've tried doing period settings, it never works because they don't have the money for it. No, but it's 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 quite entertaining. It has a strong cast. A lot of them are doing a you know God's work in keeping the thing afloat. Mm-hmm. There are some good laughs in it. It's ninety minutes of entertaining disposable fluff, and that's exactly what it's trying to be. Yeah, I would have been quite happy for the sequence of Carry On films to have gone, um, you know, from from the first one, which was what Carry On Sergeant. So you get all the the subsequent uh, Carry On films, and then you get to Carry On Dick, then Carry On Behind, I think, came after Dick, and then Carry On Columbus. So so get rid of uh, England and Emmanuel from the yeah from the uh, canon. I'd. I'd keep that's carry on though the compilation film. That oh yeah, fine. yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, I mean that too is I mean in the way that a lot of the carry on films are knocking off popular, um, uh, like that like carry on Jack is a spoof of Napoleonic ones, and, and carry on spying is supposedly a Bond spoof, but there's more the thir- there's more of the third man than James Bond in there. That's right. And carry on Henry's that's, that's... and of a thousand days, isn't it? Cleopatra a s- a spoof. Six of lives of he- six. Six Lives of Henry VIII, I thought. Oh, is that right? But, okay. but yeah. yeah, and there was the Dick, the Dick Turpin TV series as well. Um, but that's Carry On is a knockoff of That's Entertainment, mm-hmm. which was the big mm-hmm. um, uh, compilation picture of the heyday of MGM musicals because no one was making musicals anymore. Yes. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that would, that would have given the Carry On pictures, you know, a nice flourish to end on. If this is where the road ends for, the, for that particular series then it's not an unpleasant destination. It's not too bad. And I actually think the ending is quite, it's quite a nice ending. The, the, um, <clears throat> the reveal at the end that uh, Torquemada was actually um, Peter Richardson in disguise so that they wouldn't get in trouble for bringing back fake gold. Yeah. I thought that was quite a ni- nice little twist. Thanks to Tyler for making time for this recording. His excellent podcast, Goon Pod, covers another keystone of British comedy, the radio series The Goon Show. It's highly recommended and available wherever good podcasts are stocked. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast, with over 100 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, would you care for a turkey and ham sandwich?
have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.